Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And we have a special episode today. We have two guests. So first, let me introduce JP LaCour from Brand Foundations. And then we have Jane Lauterbach from PurposeWork. And I will let them each kind of introduce themselves. But we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of brand, not only externally as your company figures out uh, how to position itself in this market, but really from an internal point of view. This market is high growth, a lot of change, a lot of uh, sort of dynamic markets, dynamic businesses. And we're going to talk about why brand is actually uh, just as important, if not more important from an internal internal point of view. So why don't we start with uh, JP? Why don't you uh, give us a sense of your background and tell us why we're here today? Why are we talking about cannabis? Uh, And then we can hand it over to (laughs) JP. Absolutely. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Again, JP LeCur. My company's called brandfoundations.us if you want the URL. We are, we're really a sort of a brand agency that operates at the intersection of brand and culture. Uh, we recognize that those are the two biggest intangibles uh, that drive exit valuation in companies. And so we really try to use purpose and narrative to weave together a brand, a company's internal and external brand message and story so that uh, what they communicate to the outside world is backed up by what they uh, talk about internally as well in the culture. And those are the most successful companies and most valuable companies, the ones that live the brand truly. And so that's sort of what, what my company does. I came to the cannabis space. I've been drawn to really fast moving disruptive agencies or industries ever since I began my career, which was in the telecom space, the dawn of the internet. 
And even when I left the industry and went out uh, on my own uh, as an agency uh, to build my own agency, one of the first things we did is got into the SEO space, which was very disruptive in terms of marketing. And today, the work that we do at Brand Foundations is kind of rethinking what brand is all about and and working this notion of culture into it. So I've always been sort of drawn to these uh, disruptive notions in an industry. And I look at the cannabis and hemp space, and I I think this is a huge disruptive uh, industry. It's just going to have the potential to change everything from healthcare and uh, entertainment and even the financial, you know, underpinnings of the country. And so I'm a big fan of it. I want to see it succeed. And that's, um, Part of uh, part of what we want to talk about today is what Great. we think that's going to require. Excited to have you here, Jane. Tell Thanks. us a little bit about your background and how we got here. What is your relationship to cannabis and and this space? Well, thanks very much for having both JP and I join you today. My background is in uh, business development and brand strategy, and I've ran uh, global businesses based here as well as I spent a number of years overseas in Asia and working in a lot of uh, more considered decision kinds of industries. So I got into technology way back when. Actually, I've been involved in things like artificial intelligence and putting technology together for organizations like Apple, even before Apple, so Park and uh, those things. And so I gravitated to cannabis because I actually see them in the same way as these burgeoning categories like technology was in the 80s and like the transformation that's going on in financial services. And how do you make sense of these as they begin to really blossom? How do you make sure that you're establishing a really strong organization because it's the organization, not so much the strategy that drives growth. And so when I started the Purpose Works, and clearly you can tell from our name what we're all about, (laughs) but we felt that we didn't need to do so much work on the outside that we were really interested in the inside of an organization. Uh, Just because they're right outside my window, you know, I didn't need to make JP Morgan chase a bigger, fatter bank. And we do. I don't want to disrupt the fact that We need strong economic engines, which is the other reason why JP and I are doing this. We really want to make sure that those in the cannabis and hemp business are really making sure that they have the right infrastructure for growth. But all that growth really happens a lot on the inside. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, as we move on in this discussion today. But that's what brings us here. Yeah, excellent. And I love this idea that thinking about brand from an internal point of view, I think we've we've had a lot of conversation around, you know, external branding and positioning and the importance of that as this industry matures and, you know, as we're kind of moving into, you know, new market segments that are not, you know, have a long history with cannabis, you know, how do we explain all these things to them? But I think this idea of shifting to the internal side of branding is an important one to think about. And I don't my guess is most companies have not thought about that, right? Most companies are thinking about how to raise money or you know, where they're going to get their next supply you know, all those things. So, right. so talk to us why why you sort of what you saw or what you see right now inside these companies and why it's important from an internal brand point of view. Right. Sure. Well, well, there's a number of perspectives, right? The first one is what I call the context, the outside part. There's also the content, which is the inside part. And so the context part is think of all your competition. Think of all your competition outside of the cannabis and hemp business in terms of everyone's trying to go after the best of the best in terms of talent. And now it's this inflection point, right, where we've got to bring in people that only know about the cannabis and hemp business, but also know about how to drive and scale organizations. And so part of this was really understanding that. And then, of course, we have the future of work that's here now, right? There's no future. It's you see it, right? Multi-generational, multicultural. We have the gig economy. How do we bring in that piece of that context 
and to making sure that we're actually building organizations of real strength, not only now so that we get the important sort of quick hits in the depth, but that's going to take us you know, more long term as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's- in addition to the the recruiting challenge, I think that the industry is going to have, which Dane's talking about, you know, there are a couple others. One is this is an industry that's growing really quickly through M&A. And we know mergers and acquisitions are very disruptive to companies. They create all sorts of you know, political infighting. Oftentimes, most leaders in companies aren't taking a real hard look at the culture as they approach a merger. They're really focused on the bottom line and you know, how is it going to scale the product or the production. And we've seen some big deals this summer. Aurora and MedRelief is probably the biggest. Mm-hmm. And the stated rationale was to scale up production from you know, 32,000 kilograms a year to 570,000 kilograms a year. And they're very different companies and different characters and personalities. And then I think that's going to create a lot of challenges for the industry. And I also think there's just the nature of the industry because of its history and its unique legal status. Let's mm-hmm. just refer to it that way. You know, you're, you see a lot of really challenging cultural things happening. You have a, you know, a, a workforce to a large degree that is kind of emerging from the shadows. Some of them have operated illegally. Yep. They have to make this culture shift into doing things by the book. You have investor class and professional management leadership coming into this space for the first time that is generationally of a different time frame, yeah. has a lot of different attitudes. That's creating a tremendous amount of of um, cultural differences and you know within these organizations. I have talked to some people I know that are in that older class of yep. investors and, and leaders who literally refer to a lot of the employees as the kids. And, uh, you know, that's not a healthy necessarily yeah. way to look at it, right? They have to kind of find their common threads. So this is where I think the conversation around your internal brand, your culture and what you stand for is going to be super, super important to the health of the industry as it goes forward. Yeah. So uh, let's just recap a couple of those because I think there's a couple of points in there that I'd, I'd like to kind of dig into a little bit. So, sure. yeah, it seems like on one hand that there's this dynamic of, you know, the, the industry is growing so quickly that there's just not enough people, right? There's the people that have been working in cannabis far underserve the current talent need. So, mm-hmm. you know, that means you're, you know, somehow you're going to have to get these people, like where are these people going to come from? And clearly there's a fairly large segment that's coming out of the medical, you know, the nursing, the medical side of things that are moving into this space, mainly focused, I think, around the care, you know, people that are into patient mm-hmm. care or caring for people and see the kind of opportunity with cannabis as uh, a medicinal tool. You have people from pharma, that are coming in, you know, that are seeing this as, well, this is a, we're dealing with a production process, you know, very similar to to pharmaceutical. But each of those has very different kind of cultural underpinnings, history, kind of core values, priorities as a profession. How do you begin to stitch those together? Like when you're dealing with a business or you're dealing with industry that's pulling talent from these, these areas to be able to fill its needs, what gets created and how do you start to identify and resolve some of the things? Let's, let's deal with that one first. Well, you know, sure. there's this big statistic where I think it's something like there's a 150% increase in the talent that needs to go into the cannabis and hemp business over the next two years in order to be able to keep pace with what they're projecting as they're going to be the growth. And so that's just astronomical. Yeah. And we all know for hiring two people, what that dynamic is like now, multiply that, yeah. right? So it's a significant issue. You know, one of the things that kind of brings people together, and we've seen this as we work with leadership teams, right? You have this incredible talent. You have someone who's a really great, a great CTO and someone who's a really great CFO, but they're coming from different perspectives or one's been at the organization for a while, but in order to scale, you need to bring in this level of talent, right? Part of the problem is it's not the quality of the the expertise that they bring, it's how do you work together? Yeah. And I know it sounds pretty simple, but how do we think about 
you know, who's responsible? What are our priorities? How do we all make sure that we're all responsible for the outcomes and the direction of the company? And how does that get cascaded to everybody? Because we need everybody, right? Because everyone needs to participate. Everybody has a role to play. And as JP had pointed out, you know, what are the rules, right? They're not really written down. It's sort of in the air. You know how to behave, right? Starbucks knew how to behave when they went through their issues in Philadelphia and they took it under control and everyone goes, yeah, what a cool company, right? It wasn't disruptive to the momentum of the business in any way because they had a culture. Yeah, right. And it was rooted in a really strong sense of purpose. And I think that's the, you know, to use the Starbucks case as an example, they understood their purpose as a business. The reason they existed was to create that third place. Right. It wasn't work. It wasn't home. It's not even about the cup of coffee, right? Their brand has never been about the cup of coffee. It's about that third place you went to, to connect, to, to meet with other people. And when they threw those guys out because they weren't buying something, that was an absolute affront to their sense of purpose. Yeah. And it allowed them to act, react really quickly, know exactly what to do. And really, that's, I think, one of the key lessons that, and the reason that Jane and I came together is because purpose is a big piece of both of our businesses. Mm-hmm helping companies figure out what is that higher purpose, that bigger reason that we exist beyond making money, that allows you to create that North Star to guide employees, allows you to attract people of backgrounds because of the, you know it's not just about whether I came from pharma or whether I'm a caregiver and I care, you know, it's what is that bigger sense of purpose? And I think that's the thing that aligns people. And it's certainly one of the answers, you know, that we hold forth for a way to break down some of these challenges. Yeah. I just had an aha moment. And I it. need to the name of my company. It's about trust, right? Ultimately, it's about do I trust you that as we work together that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? Do I trust you as a brand that you're going to fill the values and behaviors that you promised me to do? Yeah. And so your purpose and culture around that those emotional components because there's you know the way that we're wired and neuroscience tells us that you know, we make decisions based on emotion. And yeah. if we have that mistrust, we're, I mean, we probably will never go back or it's going to take us a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why the Starbucks story is such a great one. We allow them to kind of trip a little bit, make a little bit of a mistake, but they we trusted them that they were going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So maybe we'll have trust works in the future. But <laughs> I think it, you know, it, it, but it, I think ultimately. And that's if people why, know your purpose, you're trusted. Yeah. If, you're, if, if it's clear what your purpose is and it's high enough, you become trusted because yeah. these are universal things, right? I mean, someone's purpose is not way down in the weeds. It's big and universal and they're things that all human beings can connect with and, and relate to. So yeah. that, that helps to generate that trust. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, certainly one of the challenges or one of the dynamics in the cannabis space right now is these companies are growing so quickly. You know, when you're, when you're at a you know, 10, 15, 20 people, a lot of that is fairly intuitive or is, is communicated in very kind of unstructured ways. Um, but as these companies get bigger, you know, I start getting 50, 100, 200, 500 people. How do you deal with the identification, the communication, sort of the indoctrination of the sort of the, that idea of purpose inside the company? Mm-hmm. And then and then how do you deal with the growth? So I've got new people coming on and they may be very different backgrounds. I'm expanding my business. I'm 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 dealing with new parts of my business that require different types of talent that are coming from different backgrounds. How do I sure. do that? Like, what are some of the principles of maintaining clarity of purpose as you grow and as you expand? Right. So. One of the frameworks that we like to rely on is about understanding kind of the character of the culture and of the people that you have within an organization. And so we rely on archetypes, which is uh, 
a specific tool called Culture Talk. It's a survey instrument that we can use within an organization to understand what are the dominant archetypes within a culture. And archetypes, remember back to high school psychology, were sort of birthed by Carl Jung, right? And his theory that there were these deeply seated characters in all of our psyche, tens of thousands of years of storytelling that we all recognize the hero, the magician, right? The caregiver. So that is one of the ways I think is a shorthand to kind of understand what do we really have here in terms of our culture? What are the, the character of the people here? And what are the dominant archetypes? And the other thing is that it allows, once you can see that, um, you can learn a lot about the people and how to manage them. But more importantly, it gives us a tool to create a narrative because each of them has a purpose and sort of a, an ideal that they strive for. You know, caregivers want to serve and they want to alleviate pain and those kinds of things. Whereas, you know, magicians want to wow people and they want to amaze people. And, and so the key is once you know what you have, you can kind of find the common story that you can create that aligns everybody together. And it can also be used as a lens through which you decide who do we add to the organization going forward. You know, and so that's one idea uh, of a framework or a tool set that you can use to really kind of get your hands around that and think about what purpose will resonate with those people. Yeah. I think you'll begin to see how our, our core sense of what purpose is and why we've come together. We look at it, and I've, I've interviewed over 35 CEOs across a variety of different industries and, and global organizations, as well as you know, working literally with hundreds of people in any kind of transformation. And the the thing is, you know, when people ask that question, if they're interviewing, what's the culture of the company? No one can really answer that. Yeah. Well, it's on the wall, right? But what they can answer is, how do you make decisions? Yeah. How do you treat each other? Are we all going to have pizza together on Thursday? And it's not if you're 20 people or 200 people, you, you just know it's like you go house hunting and kind of feel something when you walk in. You feel that when you walk in an organization. So it's the the actions and the behaviors. Again, we'll go back to Starbucks, actions and behaviors, demonstration of it. And someone needs to own it. It's not something that you can pass off to someone or, oh, I figured out sort of the game plan. I now know what our purpose is, so we're done. I call that purpose bypassing, that sort of saying it, but not really <laughs> doing it, right? So I think part of it is someone really needs to understand its, its importance and the numbers and the stats that JP and I have and that you know, we can share. But you know, we've seen the numbers, and they all show that when you're an organization that's purpose-based, your revenue and your Employee engagement, everything is everything just goes up exponentially. It's almost like really the numbers are so startling. But the numbers are from you know, significant organizations, you know, ENY, Gallup, uh, Deloitte. A lot of people are getting into the purpose world because they know that it actually does work, and the numbers demonstrate that. And with, I guess what happens mechanically, like so, as you focus on get clarity around align around your purpose. What are the things that end up happening that create that value? I mean, do you have a sense of, of how that translates down into the day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, let's just use a merger acquisition you know, scenario as, as an example. I think the natural reaction that people have and the uncertainty that, that takes place in a merger is you know, sort of a protecting their own turf, right? Yeah. Um, it, you, you begin to immediately go, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We go right to the bottom <laughs> and we start worrying about you know, what's ours, protecting our turf. And, yeah. and you know, so absent any kind of bigger thing that takes you up that pyramid a little higher, right? That's where you're going to focus your energy and attention. Whereas if you, at the outset of that process, allow everybody in the two organizations to kind of come together and say and participate in a process where they can help define 
what is going to be our shared purpose mm-hmm. going forward and what is going to be our shared culture. You give them a voice in that. That's a conversation they want to have. They'd much rather be involved in that than, you know, the, where budget money is going to go and, and, you know, who's going to get what headcount. So, and they, that empowers them. So they're more engaged now and they feel like they have a stake in kind of the, the future of it. And that's just, you know, keeping them focused on that bigger picture. Why did we do this deal? What is the bigger impact that we're going to have on the world? How are we going to make things better for all of us as a result of this? That's, you keep them focused on that big picture. They're less likely to, you know, devolve down into the, the traditional negative stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not going to solve everything, but you got to have that there to give them something to aspire to and look forward to. That's just like within an M&A environment, that's just one place I think it could happen more, you know, less disruption that happens during that process, more buy-in and engagement. Yeah. yeah. Can I elaborate on that just yeah, a, a little bit? Because you, you register a, a really important point. And I think that the conversation around how do we want to work together, not who's really good at what, we've already figured that out in an M&A conversation. It's why actually people begin to have a conversation. You have one thing over here. You're great on distribution. You're really great on product development. That seems to be a really good fit. Or you're in some regions of the country and I'm in others. But the, but the other piece of the conversation really needs to be around how do we want to work together? What are our shared values, right? And that's a conversation that needs to happen in that process. We want to be able to come in and kind of work with you either in that process or as you form together to make sure that it's because someone needs to kind of help navigate and kind of be sort of um, have the inside knowledge with the outside of perspective yeah. to be able to kind of move that along. Because many times I'm really worried about all the things I need to worry about getting the organization into that M&A environment. So having that conversation initially so you know that you're, where the fit is and then to begin to kind of figure out what it stands when then those two entities become a third entity, right? And then how do you execute on it? Yeah. And I think that's it's a lot of times where these mergers acquisitions kind of fall down is, I mean, I th- like at some level, I think it needs to be part of the evaluation process. Look, if I've got one company Absolutely. who's highly competitive and another one who's highly collaborative, like you need to m- make a decision. Like, am I going to be able to extract the strategic value out of this deal if I'm dealing with such different cultures? Like, what is it going to cost me? But certainly then through the actual acquisition and, and the merging planning process, like what is this going to look like over the next six right. months, the next 12 months? What do we need to do? And if, if I know that going in, I can have a framework, I can have a process, I can have, you know, intention around actually building a combined, you know, cultural framework for right. resolving those things. Yeah. And that's why I think the, the architects are a really good shorthand for that yeah. because they don't, they're very intuitive. You know, yeah. if you know you have a culture of sage people, they're very data oriented and you've got, you know, kind of innocent, uh, idealistic, you yeah. know, uh, they're going to be driven by emotion and those are going to be two, you know, you can make it work, right? Kirk yeah. and Spock found a way to work together, but very different personalities and they had to find their, their groove. And I think the problem is most leaders just don't take the time. They don't, they can't get their hands around culture. It's a, it's a difficult thing to measure and quantify, yeah. which is part of why I like that, that, that archetypal model. Cause it does keep it's database and you can get your kind of sink your teeth into it. Mm-hmm. And it's intuitive. A lot of the leaders just, they don't want to either don't, they can't under, conceptualize it or they're afraid. Yeah. They don't really want to know. And let's face it, in an M&A environment, and especially in this industry, which is you have a lot of money and you have a lot of drive to push these deals to happen fast. They don't want anything to mess up the deal, yeah. right? And yeah. so now they're left after the fact trying to clean up the mess. Yeah. And so really culture should be one of those things that is – front and center at every point in the M&A process from, you know, before you even go out to look to acquire a company or merge, 
who are we? Making yeah. <laughs> sure, sure you're clear on that. Yeah. And then, you know, having some way to assess who are the guys we're talking to. Yeah. But then, like you said, even after the deal is done and, and you know, understand what are we going to need to do to bring yeah. these two companies together? Where are the potential disconnects? And then after the fact, you know, what are the things that we have to do to take the best from both mm-hmm. of these companies and bring them together? And I think creating a storyline and a narrative of why we did this and that draws from both is really is, is very important. That's the beauty of the archetypes, because there is distinction and I, you know, and there are distinctions across organizations. So let's kind of use the coffee analogy since we're on that bread. Yeah. You know, Starbucks is different from Dunkin' Donuts, which is different from Peace, which is different from your local, right? Yeah. And, and they all do coffee, right? But there's a cultural purpose distinction between all of it. You just sort of, you know it, you feel it, right? right. And, and that's the beauty of what the archetypes do and that they help distinguish that. And, and the other piece of those that's great, they're not made up. Yeah. Right. They're through the richness of what the company is all about. So it's not as if you come in and kind of, hey, someone's this thing over here. So we're going to make you that because that someone already owns the other one. It doesn't work that way. Right. It's, through, it's through the anatomy and the physiology of the organization that those distinctions are, are surfaced. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the archetypes and the models, uh, my, my line on that one is that all, all models are wrong. Some of them are useful. So it's, it's a, you know, if we get into it, I, you know, often get in these arguments of it, oh, is it right? Is it, you know, statistically valid? And it's like, I, you know, the, the point is not so much that it's, is it useful in, in helping us resolve the, yeah. the problems? Exactly. And so it's not that the model's wrong. It's like, it's when people say, I don't have enough time. It's just, they don't have the right priority. Right. And so it's, the, it's executing on the model. That's the implementation part. So, so going into it with some sense of what you're dealing with and some way to kind of quantify it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Like you could survey a company at two different times and you're going to get slightly different variations in with the archetypes and the strengths. Just like in any person, right? We have them all inside of us Mm because that was Young's theory. It was like tens of thousands of years of storytelling. They're almost like genetically encoded. We recognize them all. They all show up. Just a matter of which ones are stronger. And 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 you have to you know dig into the organization and test it against the conversations that you hear and what you what you see and how people behave. But generally, I've we've found that it's it rings very true. And you know we can turn around and give people statements of things that we heard in workshops or interviews where we're like, oh look at where you guys are being the hero here. Yeah. And they're like, oh wow, yeah, that's totally us. And at least it gives you a framework to have a conversation around this stuff that. I think is often lacking and is part of the reason that people don't pay more attention to it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that it may seem to some that these feel like clouds where I can't really kind of touch them. Uh, and you can, but the other piece that we both focus in on quite a bit is the metrics too. Yeah. So right? let's talk and about so that. Cause my, my, my thing was, how do we, how do we turn this from this kind of squishy, squishy right. conversation yeah. of values into a, like, what is, what is the things that we can measure and actually see results against? Go ahead. And so part of it is, you know, working with the elements that are already within an organization. So we're not here to be completely disruptive. Let's use the things that are good. And so how are you currently measuring your business, right? Is it by revenue growth? Is it by uh, number of clients? Is it by regions that you're scaling to? Is it about, um, you know, um, how, uh, how well you're engaging your audience? Are people leaving? Is this a revolving door or are people really excited to come to your organization? How long do they stay Mm -hmm. and are they given opportunities? So what are the ways that you want to decide that are important milestones? And I, I do think it is about the business side of it as well as the organization side of it. And so we build dashboards so that we can do this easily, but do it so that's not like every year, because if you're waiting for the year, 
Yeah. One, you don't really care that much, mm-hmm. and you can't do that much about it because, as we all know, the world moves so quickly yeah. that we so fast that we need to be able to to be able to look at things with some perspective and be able to evolve as things are evolving. So the metrics piece of this is is the foundation as much as it is the archetypes and, and the positioning that we're constructing. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of tools out there that people can put into place that are third party off the shelf that are doing surveys of people internally Mm -hmm. that are measuring um, things like peer to peer recognition and interaction. And there's a ton of stuff that you can go draw from, um, uh, you know, to to create individual metrics. And then there's also just the stuff that we, you know, people are already measuring, like, you know, how long does it take to close a deal? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how, how, you know, full is the funnel? How long does it take to recruit somebody? How long tenure? I mean, there's tons of stuff, both on the HR and then the marketing and sales side that people can measure. Now it's hard to tie all of it back to, you know, your brand and your culture. But I think over a long period of time, if you look at, you know, how did these things perform before, um, you know, some kind of a rebrand or recultural initiation. And then maybe in the year afterwards, you, you can start to see, Hey, where are things changing? We, we close recs faster on, on, you know, open heads. Um, we have higher degrees of engagement from our employees. We get more referrals in, uh, to new hires from employees, yeah. um, you know, 10 years longer. Um, you know, there's a ton of stuff that you can measure. Um, it's hard to tie any one specific metric back to, you know, your brand, your culture, but, Collectively, if you step back and look at this stuff, it's it's not hard to build the case that this yeah. is driving the business forward, and this is the places we're seeing it. So let's talk to the the, the founder, the CEO, the leader inside the company that's um, you know de- dealing with uh, you know a high growth situation. What are some best practices in terms of when do I start to think about this? You know, in terms of you know at what point in terms of number of people do I need to be more kind of proactive and strategic around my internal kind of brand, my culture, and and what are kind of you know initial steps, and then what things do you do later? Like give, give us a little bit of a map for for folks that are struggling or or see this as becoming an issue for them. I'd say now. <laughs> And I don't know, it, it sounds sort of uh, flippant, but uh, it is now. And that's because no matter how big your company is, and it's not even so much about attracting talent. Why does a customer come to you? You know, there are 50,000 pizza joints in New York City. Why are some more popular than others? Well, part of it is the content, but the quality of, right? Part of it is the ambiance or the neighborhood, or, right? And it's it's that, that reason that you're going to continue to go back. As I mentioned, I, I interview CEOs around purpose. And here's the one thing that they all say, and not out of arrogance in any way. They all say, first of all, I can work in any industry. And they can. It's not about, but it's about yeah. really understanding strategy. But more than anything, this is understanding people. Yeah. And how do I engage people to be inspired and that they're in the right place doing the things that they feel are going to be good for them in terms of their own professional growth that are aligned to the direction of the company? And so part part of the what needs is the the owners of the company, the leadership team, all need to take responsibility for it. And not just the CEO, but someone really needs to kind of, it is the the head and the heart. Mm-hmm. But usually it's the CEO who's responsible for delivering on the direction and the vision of the company, which is, you know, are you an influencer or a collaborator? And, yeah. and the CEO is usually the influencer driving an organization. And how is he behaving? Because you know what? We all know everyone's watching them, mm-hmm. right? Or everyone's watching the leadership team, whether you kind of realize or not. I want to mirror that. Or a bad role model is a good role model. I don't want to do that. Yeah. 
And you don't have to do anything, you know, expensive or, you know, grandiose to get started either. Right, JP? Yeah, and I I think there's some natural sort of inflection points where it makes sense for the leadership to take a deeper look at, you know, the culture and the brand and kind of what they stand for in this whole messaging framework, if you will. Clearly, at the outset of the company's, you know, starting, if you're a founder, Mm -hmm. uh, you need to have a clear purpose behind the business um, and how you're going to operate and what you're going to stand for beyond making money. And because that's going to what's what's going to attract customers and, and the best people. I think at some point, and that's going to usually be driven by the founder. As the company grows, you know, as you get to that 50, 100 employee kind of number, it starts to be something where it's bigger than just that founder. And they really need to start thinking about, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about what we're all about and what I think we stand yeah. for. But at the end of the day, you people have to deliver <laughs> on it, right? And I can't do that anymore. And so that means they either have to really be bought into it or they have to have a voice in it. And so at that point, you might go through a process where you take another look at this and you say, you know, how do you guys want this culture and brand to be? Because I'll champion it. And that's the kind of the role reversal. It's a big letting go. And it's not easy uh, for founders to go through that kind of a thing. But if you want it to last, you either have to be messianic about it, like a Steve Jobs was, Mm -hmm. which everybody just follows on, or you have to start to turn it over a little bit to the rest of the organization. And then clearly, I think if there are points in a company's growth or history that are either going to be major pivots you know, when they've reached a point where they got to move into a different market, they make a significant acquisition, or there's a change of leadership or change of ownership, private equity thing. These are all really important times when there's a lot of change going on for the people in the company to be able to go through a process and feel like they they've, they can almost um, hit the reset button on, yeah. on who they are and what they're all about and participate in it. And, yeah. and you know, that's part of our belief is that every part, every employee needs to have a, a voice in this. And uh, so while you don't go through it all the time, it's not like an annual thing, but at these sort of major inflection points in a company's history, I think it, it, leadership needs to step up and, and uh, initiate something like that. You know, there's another M&A going on in a way. And um, in any industry that's sort of developing, and we saw this in you know technology, uh, we continue to see it there, fintech and all that, that there are these incredible growth companies. And then you have the big guys. Mm. Right. And so why why do people choose to work in those companies? Why do clients choose to work in? And, and it's not necessarily about big anymore mm. or, or product. It's about who you want to align yourself with, who feels more like me. And so as this industry continues its incredible development and growth, we, we all see the other guys coming in. So how, yeah. how do you exactly. how do you successfully compete not only for yourself, but against all these other organizations that are pretty hefty in terms of scale and scope and resources and location and you know all that sort of stuff. And so that gives you a an ability to to fight the good fight and be successful. Yeah. Like Excellent. And we're going to hit time here. So, um, and I know you guys have uh, some upcoming uh, events and things. Uh, if people want to find out right. more about uh, the two of you, the work that you do, what you're doing together, what's the best way to get that information? Sure. So, uh, we are going to be doing a webinar later in November, I think on the 14th, around this topic and how the industry can, uh, the ha- cannabis and hemp industries can grow a little bit more purposefully, right? Mm-hmm. And how purpose can help overcome some of these challenges. Uh, if people want to register for that now, we're taking names. They can go to uh, BF, as in Brand Foundations, webinar.com, and that'll take you to the registration page. Uh, and if you just want to learn more about uh, Brand Foundations, you can go to brandfoundations.us. And Jane, Jane, you yeah, your URL? Yeah, it's uh, thepurposeworks.com. 
Great. And I'll, I'll make sure all of those uh, links are in the show notes so that people can click through. Awesome. Jane, JP, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time. Oh, thank, thank you, Bruce. You You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.